0: It is September 20th, 2015. If you want to title your notes, our message today is going to be called B-grade slasher film. A B-grade slasher film. And, um, you know, a lot of things are happening this week. Wednesday is Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement in Israel. Uh, It's the day they start that CERN hydron collider that'll ramp up, so it'll be an interesting day Wednesday to see what happens. Pastor Sutherland will be preaching Wednesday. It seemed best to me that if we're going to cover Day of Atonement on Wednesday, or at least touch on it, that we discuss some of the sacrificial system in the Bible today as a way to prepare for that. But I also don't want to miss, I hope you had a chance to see the message from last Sunday, shofar and shalom it was an exploration of the feast of rosh hashanah and it was a way of saying hey god's trying to get our attention look how loving how merciful how amazing that he built into the lives of believers a chance every year to get your attention wednesday the message was charez stringing pearls rhyming or preaching and i hope you see that the father preached from the heavens And when the Father spoke, not only did He cover every area of the Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings, but He covered it in a way that thoroughly shared the gospel message. He did it at the baptism, and He did it at transfiguration. He did it in front of the nation gathered at Jordan, and He did it in front of two heavenly witnesses, Moses and Elijah. If you didn't have a chance to listen to those, they're uh, online for you now. And then Friday night, there was a home meeting, and Brother Alex adarmez I don't know what he titled it, I can tell you what I heard was that it was an amazing evening, that the power of the Holy Ghost showed up, that uh, the preaching was excellent, the altar ministry was excellent, and what I titled it was wet clothes. Apparently, Brother Alex was teaching about Peter and said he had the strength to get out of the boat. He walked on the water and then he fell, sunk down deep into the water. And who hadn't tried something for the Lord and failed? Even though his clothes were wet, he went on to the next task. Amen. I may have stumbled, but I have not fallen beyond recovery. I am moving on with Jesus. Oh, you might need to hear that word. I would encourage you to find Alex and Haley and ask them, Hey, what would you share in your home? I missed it. When's the next home meeting? because those one-family home meetings are an exciting time. Let's turn then to the book of 1 John. We're going to be in the fourth chapter, starting in the ninth verse. And um, say there when you were there. We are a church that speaks out loud, agrees out loud. If you have a question, you can ask it out loud. This is not a library. This is uh, the living, breathing, active body of Christ right here. In 1 John, the fourth chapter, and starting in the ninth verse, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. Somebody say, through him. Through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You know, the people that this was first spoken to understood an atoning sacrifice. And they understood an atoning sacrifice because it was a daily part of their lives. When this was written, there was a temple standing, and the people of God were making sacrifices at the temple. Can we say that we might lose something over 2,000 years if we are not making daily sacrifices? One of the things that the early church understood was that when you come into God's presence, you bring something. Now, prosperity preachers, if you can call them that, I prefer to think of them more like prosperity pimps. They want you to bring your checkbook into the house of God because they hope to fleece God's sheep. And they'll be accountable for that. God himself will hold teachers accountable for what they teach. In this congregation and in the congregation of the saints, what we want you to bring into the house of God is your obedience in every area. What we want is a life that is fully submitted even if it looks like sacrifice because we have heard the call of Jesus Christ. And the call of Jesus Christ came forward in a scripture like Matthew 16 and in verse 24, if any man would follow me, he must first deny himself, then take up his cross and come after me. There is no way to come to Christ without sacrificing things in your life. Because of this and this message, many people think it's loss to follow Christ. I say it's nothing but gain. He has never asked me to give up anything that was good for me. He has never asked me to sacrifice anything that would have benefited me. In fact, the things that I have let go of have actually freed me to run this race with perseverance. When we are thinking on 1 John 4, 9 through 10, if Christ is our atoning sacrifice, we need to know what an atoning sacrifice is, don't you think? What better place could we go than the book of Leviticus? Now, if you tell most pastors that we're going to preach on the book of Leviticus, they would tell you that that's a way to put your congregation to sleep. I think that's because most pastors don't understand the book of Exodus. When they read it and they see that you sacrifice this or you sacrifice that, it sounds to them a little bit like a B-grade slasher film. A lot of blood and guts, not much merit, not much plot, probably never make you famous, and they're not interested in it. I am very interested in it, and I want to show you a couple reasons why. For some of you, a few of these things will be uh, review. But how many of us could refresh about the things of God? Amen? Amen. So when we're thinking on this, it's helpful to know that when you're looking at your Bible and you see a title that says Leviticus, Leviticus is not a Greek word. Leviticus is not a Hebrew word. Leviticus comes to you from the Latin. Do you know that Jesus never spoke Latin? Not at any time in his life. None of the apostles spoke Latin. There is no recorded book of the Bible originally written in Latin. The only people on the whole planet that think that Latin is a holy language are those that live on a little peninsula called Italy. And that thought has invaded the world, but that doesn't make it true. How many people know that there are a lot of things commonly believed that are untrue? Leviticus is a Latin translation of a Greek word, and that Greek word is a translation of a Hebrew word. Wouldn't it be nice to know what was actually originally said? By the way, Leviticus is Latin for uh, pertaining to the Levites. In other words, whoever titled that, probably Jerome, titling it in the year 400, said when he reads this book, this book is it's for the priest. Well, if we were going to give him a great deal of credit, we would say, aren't we supposed to be a nation of priests? So it pertains to us but I think most people that have read it through the years have said that pertains to someone else. I'd like to share with you that the Hebrew title of this book is actually Veikra. I'm going to write it up here so that you can see that. Veikra is a Hebrew word that is taken from the first sentence of Leviticus. When you were thinking about the first sentence of Leviticus, Says the Lord called to Moses. If the Lord called to someone, what kind of revolutionary statement is that in history? How many of you would like to get a phone call from, um, oh, name a, name a celebrity? From Arnold Schwarzenegger. Gabe Sutherland, how would that sound? Ring, ring, ring. Hello? Hello. <laughs> How many of you would like to get a call from Arnold Schwarzenegger or Barack Obama or, a long time ago, maybe Ronald Reagan? What does it mean to say? (laughs) You might prefer one of those phone calls more than another. I'll (laughs) leave that up to you. One is asking for money and the other was probably giving you something. Um, What would it mean to have God Almighty calling to you? In fact, the book of Leviticus comes at a place in the Bible that if you put... The Hebrews named their books based on the first line in each Bible. So in Hebrew, it goes, Bereshit, <laughs> no jokes there. Uh, Shemot. After Shemot, Veikra. Uh, after that, Bemidbar. After Bemidbar, Devarim. What this is, is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and in Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Bible actually tell a story in Hebrew, though. The first line of Genesis, in the beginning. The second book, Exodus, Shemot. These are the names. Third book of the Bible, Leviticus. He called, fourth book of the Bible, uh, Numbers, in the desert. midbar means in the desert. Fifth book of the Bible, Deuteronomy. He gave His words. Think about that sentence. In the beginning, these are the names He called in the desert and gave His word. Even the first line of the Hebrew uh, speaks His message in and of itself. The Torah is the story of the people God found In a desert, He knew their names, He called them, and He gave them His Word, and it has changed everything. Where were you when He gave you His Word? Were you not in a desert of some kind? Because if you got saved without being in a dry place, without being in a prison of your own making, I don't think you actually got saved. I think what happened is you added Jesus to a life that you were already pretty happy with. You didn't die to anything, so you can't be reborn to anything. That's called religion. That is not called being born of heaven or born again. But today, I don't want to focus on the five books of the Torah as much as just the book of Leviticus, which means he called. Have you ever seen somebody screen their calls? I mean... Let's just, for argument's sake, say somebody's calling for a donation from the Lions Club. You're in the middle of dinner. Do you take that call? Cody says no. Uh, (laughs) Let's suppose for a minute that Arnold Schwarzenegger called and wants you to be in his next movie. Do you take that call? (laughs) You understand when you answer a call that says something about what you think of the person on the other side? What does it mean that God himself is calling to you? I mean, what, what kind of story is that? Most gods would be unapproachable. And if you did approach them, what would you have to do to approach them? I mean, I've been to India eight times. You know what you have to do to approach those satanic, wicked gods? You have to hurt yourself in some way. You, you have to debase yourself in some way to approach those gods. The thing that people are worshiping that they call Allah and they say is God but is no God at all. In fact, a better representation would be Satan and his pedophile prophet. What do you have to do to serve that God? Well, the most devoted among them uh, go to war with the rest of humanity. What would God require of you if he was calling you? What, What would that be? And how honoring would it be to have God himself call your name. It's an interesting thing then, because that's not where this story stops. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. In these first few sentences, we don't just have God speaking and Him calling, we have something else. In Hebrew, that phrase, when any of you brings an offering, is actually korban. Some of you may recognize that because in the New Testament, it's often untranslated. You can find that in uh, the Gospel of Mark. Without going into that... The sentence structure in Hebrew promotes something that you might not get from this. It actually says Korban Yahweh. When any of you Korban Yahweh. Yadhe Vavhe. Korban Yahweh. Here's what it's meaning, what it's saying. It is saying to you, when any of you Draws near with an offering to the Lord, not brings an offering and sets it at a temple for the Lord. When any of you korban to korban in Hebrew, stand up, Jason. Do you mind for a second? Here's if if I say this pen is for Jason, I'm going to leave it there. Now, Jason, get the pen. That's not korban. Korban is when I take this and I bring it to Jason. To Korban is to draw near, thank you. Korban is to draw near to Yahweh. What an incredible thought that God would be calling to you and that you would have a way to not just leave him an offering somewhere, but you could draw near to him. And by the way, this yad He vav this, this word Yahweh, it's the covenant name of God. It's the God's name that says, I am that I am, that spoke to Moses out of a burning fire that didn't consume the bush. We're not speaking about a statue or a deity that you can find at a Vietnamese restaurant uh, that, that we serve fruit to every so often in a certain season. We're talking about the God who has raw existence, who has always existed, from whom and through whom everything that is created or ever will be created exists. That's an incredible thing. When you, a mortal man, mortal woman, could hear God's call and not just give something to someone representing God, but you could actually draw near to Him. Anybody want to draw near to the Lord today? Yeah. Come on, like wedding vows, say, I do. I do. When we see this in the Scripture, it should draw our attention to the fact that God is calling to His people and that His people have a chance, a real chance, to actually come to Him. You see this reflected in several New Testament passages. We're going to put James 4.8 on the screen. It's a Scripture that many of you, even if you don't know where it's at, you quote it regularly. Come near to God and He will come near to you. The idea is if you korban, if you come to God with an offering, He will do something. He will also close that distance and come to you. In fact, in our songs and stuff and from some of our other translations, we say draw near to God and He will draw near to you. If you're really old school angel, you'll say God is nigh thee, right? He's come near to thee. How about that? How about this one? Hebrews 10.22. In Hebrews 10.22, we see it explained like this. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. This language is the language of someone who would be bringing a sacrifice to God or God. How about maybe the most basic? The first thing that Jesus really says in the Gospels when it comes down to it. Matthew 4, 17. Look at this phrase. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The concept of you being able to draw near to God or God near to you is explained in Leviticus through the terms Korban Yahweh. There would be a time, there would be a way where you could hear God's voice and He would be beckoning you, come into my presence. Yo, that's special. You know what? That's a whole lot better than being promised a Rolls Royce if you give a ministry a few dollars in the plate. By the way, let's just clear this up. I don't like the prosperity gospel, could you tell? And if it really works the way that those charlatans say that it works... Why don't they send their money to you and let God send them a sevenfold return? Why does it only work in one direction? Okay? I don't want your money. Jesus Christ wants your obedience in every area of your life. Your money is such a small part of that. Okay? Um, I want you to draw near to the Lord because I know that when you draw near to Him, something will happen. It'll change everything about your heart and life. The transforming power of the gospel so got hold of me... That I've never been the same. I never will be the same. There is no going back because I know what it is to be in His presence. What if the most transformational thing that Jesus ever said is you're going the wrong way, you need to turn around. That's all the word repent. You're going the wrong way, you need to turn around because the kingdom of heaven is near. You can draw near to it. You can enter into it. In fact, you can be enveloped in it so that its dominion, its rules, its government shape everything about your life. You might even become an ambassador as a part of an embassy. You're in this world, but not of it. You're ruled from another place. One of the shameful things about the American church is that when you go into it, it's often nothing like the kingdom of God. It never drew near to the kingdom of God. It simply learned a system of phrases. A system of rules, mostly aimed at fleecing the sheep like a business. I want to show you in five chapters of 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 Leviticus, five chapters, five unique phrases. And I want to ask you, by the way, you Bible students from the Acts class. Who's in the Acts class? If you've ever taken the Acts class in here, now or in the past, raise your hand. What does the number five represent? Grace. Grace. How about that? That you could find the number... Five in the first five chapters of Leviticus. In the first chapter, we're going to fill in this blank. In the second chapter, we're going to fill in this blank. In the third chapter, this blank. In the fourth chapter, this blank. And in the fifth chapter, this blank. These look a little bit like steps. An artist, I'm not, obviously, right? Sebastian, you wouldn't let me in your school, would you? He's an administrator of an art program, the admissions administrator. What if God gives us five ways to help us understand how we draw near to him? And in those five ways, it speaks an undeniable message. Let's start with the first one. For those of you who are really serious students, I'm going to put in it Strong's numbers for you. For those of you that that's not your deal, don't worry about it. Uh, I'm going to tell you what every one of them means, and I rarely lie when I preach. Okay, we're going to read now Leviticus 1 and verse 3. We will have covered three verses in Leviticus, but hopefully it will be transformational. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, in other words, if the Lord calls you, and you answer by wanting to draw near to Him... And the offering that you're bringing is a burnt offering from the herd. He is to offer a male without defect. He must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. Do you mean that there was a tent? There was a place that you could go to called the tent of meeting to meet with the Lord? Oh man, this was the forerunner of the church. In the Older Testament, it was called the quahal or the assembly of the Lord. It was the place you could go to and meet with God and God's people. In the New Testament, that was called the ecclesia, the church. Would you be surprised to know in the New Testament, it never refers to a building? There is not one instance ever in the New Testament where the word church refers to a building. So we say in English, we're going to go to church. We're at the Church, their seats in the church but the new testament says you guys you are the church you simply happen to meet in this building this building is not the church the building is lifeless the church is full of life the building is just brick and mortar you are actually the flesh and blood of jesus the christ how important is it that we represent him well The very first offering in Leviticus is called an olah. Somebody say that. Olah. Not ole. (laughs) Olah. When you're thinking about this, an olah is a burnt offering. And it's an interesting thing that it's the very first one that God uh, describes. Because in Leviticus 1.3, when he uses the word olah, it means steps. It means ascending. If you're a Cheech and Chong fan, don't admit to it. Don't laugh out loud. Or up in smoke. Now, what are y'all doing over there? We're not supposed to laugh out loud at that. Ola means if you're going to bring an offering that is a burn offering, an offering of stepping up, an offering of ascending are an offering of up in smoke. I want you to do it at the tent of meeting and it will be acceptable to me. Now picture the imagery here. You're going to take a bull or a sheep or a goat or any one of two kinds of birds, uh, a dove or a pigeon, and this innocent animal is going to die. You're not going to die, but the innocent animal is going to die. And you're going to bring it, and since you can't see God... When you ask a child, where is God, what do they do? Everybody do that. See, now you're pseudo-charismatics. you got at least one hand up. Now, an interesting thing about up. uh, We have at least one young lady from Scotland in here. We have at least one young man from Egypt in here. We have at least one beautiful princess here from Tanzania. we got people from all over the Ivory Coast of Africa, all over the world in here. And if we're all standing on a sphere pointing up, we're pointing in different directions, aren't we? So can we say up is more of a concept than a direction? Yes. yes. What if that offering, as you lit it on fire and you saw the smoke go up and disappear, was a way of saying, Lord, I know that you're allowing me to come near to you in my heart. As I see this smoke disappear, I'm imagining myself in your presence. What if the first step in coming to the Lord was believing that when he called and asked you to come near, you actually could? That doesn't sound like an angry, vengeful God who is trying to smite you, does it? What if the book of Leviticus that preachers have railed on for centuries saying it's blood and guts and it's to bind you up in sin was actually meant to free you? What if they misunderstood it? How many of you own a Bible? I'm not going to ask you how many of you read it this week but I'm simply going to say we live in a time period where you might not be able to trust everyone with an open Bible who says they're preaching from it. In this very town, I hear heresy regularly, and it's loved. People with itching ears are devouring it, building ever bigger buildings, but it doesn't make it any more correct. God wanted you to be able to ascend, to go up in the smoke, at least in your thoughts. Could we put Colossians 3... And in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, in reference to this Ola offering. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What if Ola taught you to set your heart in the heavens? you ever had one of those days where nothing went right? you ever had a week like that or a month? Yes. If you had years like that, I don't want to hear about it. I know that it happens, but let's not dwell on it. I, um, I have a, a, a dryer, and like most men who buy things, I think I bought it like last year. But my wife tells me that it's been eight or nine years. <laughs> and I think what that means is at least once last year I walked into the same room where it was. It wasn't working before I went to Romania. And astonishingly, it wasn't working when I came back from Romania. And then when I went to Mexico, it was not working. And when I came back from Mexico, it was not working. So before we go to Suriname, I thought, we better get it working. And I happen to have a good friend who's an electrician. And um, I had gone through... I, I changed every part that could be changed. And I don't like to concede to Matthew that that it's an electrical problem. Because when Matt looks at anything, it's an electrical problem because he's an electrician. We can be working with a gas-powered chainsaw and Matt is drawn to the spark plug. There's just no way around it. And would you, would you guess he found an electrical problem? There was a thermal coupling uh, that, that... That sounds like Star Trek to me, thermal coupling. okay? There was a thermal cuplink that went out and because it went out, um, well, we had no heat. And because we had no heat, we were living in a loveless marriage there for a little while. And um, so Matt helped me fix that, you know. And, and we got it fixed, and we ran a load through it. And we were so excited that we um, woke up the next day to do all of these, you know, mountains of laundry. And, um, and the, the washing machine broke. Sometimes when you set your mind on earthly things, It's got a way of just pulling you deeper and deeper and deeper, okay? Uh, You all have read those little charts of Murphy's Law? Well, God's Law is not like Murphy's Law. God's Law actually elevates you. It revives you. It breathes life into you. Murphy's Law, while it may seem true, has never helped anybody. You know what I mean when I say Murphy's Law? Like the only one who can't read a map is also the one with the best negotiating skills, those kind of laws. Um, Murphy's Law says if it can go wrong, it will go wrong. God's Law actually says if you set your heart in the heavens, it's possible to draw near to God and Him to you. Now, which would you prefer? Does anybody in this congregation want to be closer to the Lord? See, with all of my heart, that's what I want. I don't really care what it takes. I would be willing to, to do what the gods in India require of their people. I would make an excellent Muslim. That whole thing is based on carnality. Every bit of it. You can lie when you need to. Uh, The whole sensual promises in the afterlife. And the very best part is you don't turn the other cheek. You hurt people. What lost man would not love that religion? It's because it's satanic. Did I say that enough? Okay, I just wanted... And and by the way, we put these on the World Wide Web. Can I say that we're not scared? There is no fear in us, not, not anywhere. We're living a life for Christ. What if what Jesus wants of us is to set our heart in the heavens and ascend to him? And the first place you really see that is in the book of Leviticus. Could you turn to the second chapter? Let's read the second chapter and start in verse 1. We'll put 1 on the screen. When someone brings a grain offering to the Lord, his offering is to be of fine flour. He is to pour oil on it and put incense in it. If what you do when God calls to you is to bring to him grain, then God says that he wants you to mix that grain offering with oil and incense. It's almost like he wanted it to represent something that was sweet or something that smelled good. In fact, Trister, I thought you would like this. Look at verse 13. Put 13 on the screen. Leviticus 2, 13. Season all of your grain offerings with salt. salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to your offerings. I'll come back to salt in a minute. The church has heard a lot about that lately. The word mincha in Hebrew, Strong's number 4503, mincha means a bloodless, say bloodless, bloodless, voluntary tribute. Do you mean to tell me that one of the ways to God's heart is not with the shedding of blood, not killing anybody or anything, but simply bringing some of the work of your hands to Him as a tribute and saying, Lord, I love you and I want to bring you mincha, a bloodless, voluntary offering. You know, one of the ways that that shows up and shows up throughout the New Testament is in Matthew 5. Look at Matthew 5, 11 through 13. I'm going to put that one on the screen. Blessed are you when people insult you. Do you feel blessed when people insult you? Probably not. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, because of Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on by men. Some excellent teaching from Pastor Triester speaking prophetically now, from Mr. Treister, is that salt stands for your devotion to the Lord, your zeal for the Lord, your absolute boldness for the Lord. You know what had to be in every single bloodless, voluntary tribute to God, every mincha offering? Salt had to be added to it. It was not enough to go, okay, Lord, I need to bring grain because I had to bring you something. So here it is. God wanted your devotion, your boldness. He wanted you to enter into His courts with thanksgiving in your heart, telling everyone not that you have to bring a mincha offering. You get to. How great is it that I get to come to the living God? I heard Him call and He will accept me into His presence and I've brought something to say thank you. Kind of like a housewarming gift. If you're mad when you bring a housewarming gift, then you probably shouldn't go to that house, huh? People that do things like tithe as in paying a bill. People that look at what they have to do for the Lord, are missing the second offering of Leviticus. That one of the steps in our growth before the Lord is not just setting our minds on things above, Ola, ascending into His presence. It's also mincha. It is the pure devotion in our heart that causes us to bring Him things that we didn't bleed for just because we love Him. Amen. Do you love the Lord? Yes. Would your life show That you love the Lord? Would your wife testify about you that you love the Lord? Would your mother say that you love the Lord? And by the way, when did you get included in his kingdom? Because you're not born into it. You can be born into tax rolls, you can be born into church rolls, but you have to be born again to be included into his kingdom. The third of the offerings that you see, shockingly, is in the third chapter of Leviticus. Are you noticing that each offering is in each chapter, like five steps? You wouldn't get five chapters into the book of Leviticus until your understanding of God was revolutionized. In the third chapter, in the first verse, if someone's offering is a... Somebody say fellowship. Fellowship Fellowship offering. And he offers an animal from the herd, whether male or female, he is to present before the Lord an animal without defect. you mean to tell me that our... Fellowship should not have defect in it. This is Strong's number 8002. This word is shalem, S-H-E-L-E-M. Very similar to shalom, peace. In fact, it has the same root. When you hear the word Jerusalem, uh, this is, is very similar. It's city of peace. When you see this, obviously it means Peace. But the other things in Hebrew that shalim means are thanksgiving and fellowship. Peace, thanksgiving... And fellowship. What kind of God do we serve? The kind that says you can ascend in your thoughts to Him. You can draw near to Him. What kind of God do we serve? The kind that says you can bring me bloodless, voluntary tribute as long as it's packed with your devotion. What kind of God do we serve? The kind that says I really want there to be peace, thanksgiving, and fellowship between us. You know, people that think the Older Testament showcases an angry God have not read enough of it to understand what they're reading. And they may be listening to a six-foot-tall icicle preaching from behind a podium that hides his character. Because what happens when you read the Older Testament is you see that the living God waits hundreds of years to judge sin. You see that He is patient beyond description, that He is loving in a way that no man has ever come close to outside of Jesus the Christ. What you see in the Older Testament is it's exactly like the Newer Testament. It's God's Word. There are no divisions in it. Step number one, we're going to ascend. We're going to set our hearts in the heavens. Step number two, we are going to add devotion or salt, even in the areas of bloodless voluntary tribute. Step number three, God wants to have peace, thanksgiving, and fellowship, but he says it has to be without defect. Say that with me, without defect. Have you ever been in the same room with someone, but you were not really in the same room with them? Now, those of you who didn't answer that, I'm assuming that you're single, because you married people know exactly what I'm talking about. You've been laying in the same bed, but you're on different planets, backs to each other, You know, hands under your head, you are not going to turn that direction, not going to speak if it kills you, and it is killing you. (laughs) God doesn't want a relationship with you like that. He doesn't want your relationships to be like that. He doesn't want you to have walls between you and your neighbor. It builds a ceiling between you and him. He actually wants you to be at peace with him so that you're okay. To be at peace with everyone else. The third offering in the in the chapter 3 of Leviticus is actually how to have peace, thanksgiving, and fellowship with God. And can I tell you what happens when you have peace, thanksgiving, and fellowship with God? You start to have it with your fellow man. You want to know how I know that Islam does not teach you to be in right standing with God? Because they're killing people all over the world. Amen. Every country I go to, it's a problem. And in this country, we insist on saying it's a religion of peace despite all proof to the contrary, every bit of it. And we talk about moderate Islam all of the time. It's moderate, it's moderate. Was Muhammad moderate or not? No. Well, how can you follow Muhammad as a moderate if Muhammad was not moderate? Okay? Now, I love Muslim people just like I love homosexual people. And I love transgendered people. And I love people of every kind, every variety of sin because they can be encountered by the power of God that will blow the doors off of their sinful philosophies. And in the name of Jesus, they walk out new creatures. And we see it all the time. We have former Muslims in here, former homosexuals in here, former sinners of every kind in here. So I won't be lectured about what God can't do or what we should or shouldn't say. What I am going to tell you is that if we look at this with eyes to see, we might see that our God says, set your heart on me, bring me real devotion and thanksgiving, fellowship in peace without defects. Could we read Titus 3, verses 3 through 8? At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of In the Holy Spirit. Guys, if he poured this out on us, if he's willing to have peace, thanksgiving, and fellowship with us, how can we not be reconciled to people around us? Do you know that the New Testament, not the Old, gives you the prohibition? If you do not forgive, you will not be forgiven. If you do not show mercy, none will be shown to you. Did you know that's found in the New Testament? Our God wants us to have fellowship with Him. And He wants it badly enough to call from the heavens to Moses and say, Moses, I want you to draw near, and everybody who reads your words, to draw near to me with an offering. But when you bring me an offering of shilem, it cannot have defect. Let me ask you, do you stand in the house of God today with a defect in your fellowship offering? Say, I'm right with God. You cannot be right with God if you're wrong with the people you're sitting next to. Just to do it, let's put 1 John, the first chapter, the fifth verse on the screen. This is the message we have heard from Him and declared to you. God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with Him, Yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Let's pause there for a minute. Is it possible to be in fellowship with God and walking in darkness? Now, I want to show you in verse 7 the chief way in which walking with God affects your daily life. It's verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, purifies us from all sin. When you get right with God, who does it put you right with? The people who are around you. Okay? Now, God wanted us to be right with Him. And He said, you know what? I want it so badly that I'm going to tell you. You can't be right with me if you're not willing to get right with them. Interesting that in our time, everybody claims to be right with God, but nobody's right with each other. We can even, even murder babies and say we're Christians. We can be openly homosexual and say we're Christians. There's a ministry in our church that grew organically out of it. They go to a bar called the F Bar. And they stand in a place where they get the opportunity to, to worship and share the love of Jesus with people that the church might not normally approach. And you know what they see on an increasing basis? Ministers and music ministers who are in uh, an environment that is 100% pro-homosexual and in an environment that is flamboyantly uh, proud and outgoing homosexual. Guys, it's not possible, not possible to get right with God if we're doing yucky things with each other. Getting right with God shows up in our character with each other. That's just one sin. How about bitterness? How about the things that are not so easy to see? How about unforgiveness? You know, we come into church and we worship and we sing our praises good and and we, we do those kind of things. But if you walk out with the same grudge that you walked in with, you are deceiving yourself. Yeah? One of the most shocking things to me as a pastor is the number of years in which somebody will hang on to an unforgiveness. And as soon as you touch on it, in a meeting you're like, Hey, uh... What's going on here with all of that? You know what I'm talking about. They're like, well, see, the thing is, when I was seven, my daddy did. Oh, see, I thought you were a Christian. Uh, I didn't realize you were still outside of Christ. So, oh, well, the thing is, is she made me feel like, oh, I, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were in right fellowship with God. I, I didn't realize we were so petty as to still be keeping score just like the world without recognizing it was building a ceiling between us and God. Good. You know, you can preach. You, you, can, you can go around the world and do missions and have a ridiculously sinful heart. Uh, I'm concerned about mine all of the time. I hope you're concerned about mine. We need to pray for each other, need to help each other. In fact, if every step we were working in the kingdom was, Lord, I need to set my heart on heavenly things. Help me do that. Help me purge this worldliness. Lord, I want pure devotion to you even in the areas that are not salvation issues. Lord, I want to have fellowship with you without defect. That would take us to chapter 4. Let's go to Leviticus 4 and pick up in uh, verse 3. This is Strong's number 2398. It's called chata. I'll probably say it 10 different ways during the service. I'm obviously not a native Hebrew speaker. If the appointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering, a chata offering, for the sin he has committed. Verse 4. He is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand on its head and slaughter it before the Lord. One of the clearest messages in all of the Bible is that sin brings death. The Newer Testament makes the astounding claim that the sacrificial system of the Older Testament never actually did away with anyone's sin. And that's why it had to be repeated over and over and over, which begs the question, if it didn't actually do away with your sin, then what was it for? Do you think maybe for 1,600 years, God wanted the people to know, when you sin, and I know you, so I know that you will, it brings death. And he actually had the people do something with this kind of offering. It literally says, let me pick it up in verse 4. He is to present the bull at the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord. He is to lay his hand. Somebody say "Lay lay his hand. You had to personally identify with the animal that was being killed. When you put your hand on it, it was as if you were the one killing it. Do you know why? It was dying for your sin. Now, some years ago, I brought a goat into this sanctuary and I put out uh, a big tarp. And while I was preaching about animals dying for sin, I pulled out a knife about that long. And you should have heard the women gasp. My own wife was sitting, I don't know, somewhere over here. And she's like, no, no, no. Like, don't you do it, Eric. Like she doesn't. She my wife loves me and she is uh, a serious encouragement to me. But it almost emboldens me when people tell me I can't do something. <laughs> Why not? Why do you not kill that animal? Why is it so abhorrent to us to kill the animal? But we take lightly that God killed his son for us? <coughs> I mean, let's be honest. If I put a puppy up here that is starving to death, all of you be bleeding hard. Oh my God, there's a puppy. If it's a cat, only some small percentage of you would. But but a dog, you'd be like. But the the puppy, you know. But we can stand up here and talk about the blood of Jesus Christ all day long, and nobody's hearts move that way. You know why? We've been so gospel hardened. We've seen it so abused, and we. It doesn't have an effect on us anymore. But if every time you had to come to this altar, you had to walk through knee-deep blood, oh, I bet you'd see it a little differently. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean that the precious blood of Jesus was not shed for you. If you had to put your hand on an animal... By the way, what are all your friends doing while this is happening too? You could, for this, you, you, you could bring a goat, a lamb, or a bull. So what would you think if I brought a bull? What did he do? (laughs) That's the third bull this week. That brother's full of a lot of bull. You had to admit openly before the whole world you were having serious problems. They all had to see it. They had to see that things were dying, things of value, dying because of your sin. Do you honestly think that that might not be a good reminder for us today? Incidentally, that is what communion is for, it's supposed to remind you of that very same thing. When you think of hata, please think of laying your hands—a personal responsibility. But let's let's actually read First Peter two, twenty-four. By the way, if you want to know what uh, hata means in Hebrew, it's to miss, to lead astray, or condemn. So, if you missed what God wanted, if you were led astray, or you have become condemned, this was your offering. Are you all in 1 Peter 2? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by whose wounds? By whose wounds? Oh, come on, church, all of you. By whose wounds? By His wounds, you have been healed. See, for this to really mean something to the people, you have to have a serious personal identification for with Him or else it's just like some guy somewhere died for me. But if your hand was on His head, if you were driving the nail because it was your sin, not the sin of the world, your sin... How seriously would you take it? And why does God put this in Leviticus? Because in the first chapter, setting your heart on heavenly things would cause you to ascend towards the Lord in your thoughts, being devoted to Him in bloodless, voluntary tribute. Even the things that are not salvation, you just wanted to get close to Him. You would actually hear His call saying, look, I want peace with you and you to have peace with everyone else, but it has to be peace without defect, not like our... Iran deal, right? Peace uh, at all costs might cost you all. I mean, that is one of the most ridiculous things that I have ever seen. And if you're not praying for the welfare of our country, you must have your head in the sand because judgment is written across our nation. But let's deal with us for a minute. To have fellowship with God, it would have to be without defect. Your relationship with others comes into play. Then he would say, look, if you've come to the place where you are condemned, you have missed my goodness for you. If you've been led astray, I want there to be an offering for you to be able to deal with your chata, your sin. Does that sound like a God who is angry? It sounds like four steps to get close to him. It sounds to me like it's mercy on every single chapter. By the way, what's going on in the world in 1600 B.C.? I mean, what are the other gods, so-called gods, requesting of their people? Well, to get close to Molech, you had to burn your son in a fire. That's what you needed to do. To get close to the Ammonite god... I I can't even say some of the things that those people did. Read your Bibles. It's disgusting. I mean, they hurt men, women, and children, and usually sexually. The whole world's not changed a lot. By the way, if you're part of a worldwide institution that is internationally renowned for hurting children, sexually abusing children, consider whether or not you can associate that with Christ. Because Jesus didn't do those things. People say the church, the church has sinned, the church has done this. No, no, no. A political institution masquerading as the bride of Christ may have done those things, but the bride of Christ didn't do them. The difference between Islam and Christianity is that pure Islam, you act like Muhammad, and when you act like Muhammad, you cut people's heads off, and you go to war. Pure Christianity is when you act like Jesus, and He loved His enemies. Those are dramatically different things. The fifth one might be the most important for us today. Interestingly enough, it's the simplest to understand. It's called Asham. When you're looking at Asham in your Strongs, it's 816 and 817. This is a very unusual sacrifice. It comes last. It's like the last-ditch effort to help you get right with God. When you're thinking of a sham, we might pick up in Leviticus 5, starting in verse 5. Are you all there? When anyone, say anyone, anyone, is guilty, that word is a sham. A sham quite simply means guilty. When anyone is a sham in any of these ways... He must confess in what way he has sinned. And as a penalty for the sin he has committed, he must bring to Yahweh a female lamb or goat from the flock as a, a sham offering, a guilt offering. That word in your Bible is sin, but in Hebrew it's the same, a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for his sin. Look at verse 7. Now, guys, sometimes it's easy to read and go, well, I know what that means. Think on this for a second. If he cannot afford a lamb, do you mean to tell me that you could miss, be led astray, condemned sin and feel guilt from that sin and God wanted to deal with your guilt so badly, he wanted you to be able to get right so badly that if you could not afford what he said to bring, He's going to offer you an alternative? Mm. Look, for only a $1,000 offering, you can be a diamond level whatever and go on on a trip with us to so-and-so and even have lunch with the pastor. The heart of God, the heart of God was, if you can't afford what I'm telling you to do, because I love you and I desperately want you to be free from guilt, if you can't afford it, he is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the Lord as a penalty for his sin. One for the sin offering and the other for the burnt offering. Let's go to the next verse. He is to bring them to the priest. He shall first offer one as the sin offering. He is to wring its head from its neck, not severing it completely and is to sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering against the side of the altar. The rest of the blood must be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. The priest shall then offer a burnt offering in the prescribed way and make atonement for him and the sin he has committed, and he will be... What is it worth to know that you are forgiven? What would that be worth? For a guilt offering in the Bible, there are provisions that if you can't afford what is being asked, there's an alternative. What does that say about the heart of God? If you didn't have any other book of the Bible, what would you think about a God like this? Do you think that perhaps when we're reading about Asham, we might have in our mind something like 1 Timothy 2, 3-6? through Tell me when you're there. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What does God want? All men to be saved. Those who can afford it, those who can't afford it. How many men? All men to be saved. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. That man is Christ Jesus who gave Himself as a ransom for... Well, if He gave Himself as a ransom for all men, then why have not all men come to Him? Perhaps not all have heard His call. Not all know that they can korban, they can draw near to Him. Not all know that there is a way just like that smoke that ascends to ascend into the heavens during worship, that there's a way with pure devotion to bring a mincha offering to Him, to have fellowship that is without defect with Him, that if you've missed the mark, been led astray, found yourself condemned and guilty, that God Himself wants to wash away your guilt. Now let's talk about can't afford for a minute. You're a biblically literate church. The wages of sin is... Who can afford it? Who paid it? See, none of us could afford what it would take to get rid of our guilt. None of us could. Who paid it? Do you love Him more or less? More or less than if I were going to sacrifice a bull up here let's put it in American terms if I were going to sacrifice your pet to get you in right order with God does that strike a mark for you? some of you got little animals that you love an awful lot you take holiday pictures with them they have special leashes special bowls what if you had to put your hand on its head and cut its throat friends they did that year after year after year and then the writer of Hebrews says it never actually removes sin it was a reminder it was a reminder one big thing that the church still has not understood you can't afford sin you can't it will cost you more than you ever wanted it to it will bring your life down to the very depths of hell you know that's not a God who's angry and wants to beat you with this word That is very much a God who loves you and wants to rescue you from sin that is killing you and gives you five steps to deal with it. Five was the number of? Five was the number of? Grace. And you find grace throughout the Levitical sacrificial system. If Pastor Wade shares with you on Wednesday and shows you that an entire nation got right with God in a single day, what must that have felt like? to know that not just you were right with God, but your mother and your father and your brother and your cousin and your neighbor. You know, the one that keeps leaving ruts in your yard or whatever it is, that with, but you were all right with God together. You know what that would look like? Heaven on earth. Church, what if this book is actually trying to describe for us what heaven on earth might look like? I shared with you from the law. Leviticus is the law. I would like to read to you from Isaiah 55, 1 through 6. This is the Nevim in Hebrew. This is the prophets. Isaiah 55. Come all you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without? Why spend money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, hear me, that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the people, a leader and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations that you do not know will hasten to you, because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for He has endowed you with splendor. Verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He is near. Is your money an impediment? Is it? If you don't have enough money, will that keep you from coming to the Lord? You know the one requirement the prophet placed on you? That you be hungry. That you be thirsty. He say, well, Eric, I ate this morning. I'm not hungry or thirsty It's the kind of hunger and thirst that when God meets it, your soul delights in the richest affair. Is there anybody in here that feels further from God than they want to be? Is there anybody in here who can feel the Lord calling you but you just didn't know how to come near? All of the Bible is one unified message trying to draw you in that way. You've heard it from the law. You've heard it from the prophets. In Psalm 51 and verse 17, a single verse from the writings completes the entire testimony of the Older Testament. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. What is God really looking for when He tells you to bring an olah, a mensha, a shalim, a chathah, a, a sham? He's looking for you to be broken over your condition and hunger for better. He knew you couldn't afford it. He knew that this would not actually take away your sin. He was teaching you how to hunger for Jesus Himself. And we have the unmitigated nerve to take that for granted. So let me ask you. Since you came to your saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, has it been marked by obedience? Were you more on fire the first week you were born again or now? See, when you talk to Americans, we can't talk in terms of salvation because everybody believes themselves saved. We can't talk in terms of devotion because we believe that when we've accepted a certain creed then we're sufficiently devoted. But the book of Veikra. It says, God is calling to us and it's defined, your response, by a heart that is set in the heavens. Devotion even in bloodless things, fellowship without defect, accounting for being led astray in sin or guilty. Would that describe you? Is your walk with the Lord shown out in actual steps daily Or is that a metaphor so far removed from your life that you don't even understand it? Do you have actions that show the faith that you claim to possess? Or do you only have a family history, an announcement at an altar, where some man other than God, a man, proclaimed you saved? See, the Bible actually says that nobody can do this in their own strength. We want to read Ezekiel 36. We're going to read verse 24, and we're going to close very shortly thereafter. I want us to korban Yahweh, draw near to Him. And in Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24, He says, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you. Who will do it? You can't do it on yourself. And just because a priest did it doesn't mean God did it. God Himself will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be... How do you know when God Himself has sprinkled clean water on you? Because you are now clean if your salvation did not result in a conscience that is clean before God, if your salvation did not result in a new character before God, if your life is not so substantially different that you could be called changed into a different person, then you were never born again at all. And if you were born again, but have so corrupted your walk by missing the mark being led astray, that you've brought yourself into condemnation, we might need to ask God to sprinkle us again. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from your idols. I will give you a new heart. Say new heart. heart. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. So let me ask you, modern Christian... When did you get your new heart? Not invite Jesus into your old ratty sinful heart. When did you get a new heart? When did you get the new spirit? About half of Christianity is fine saying, I got a new heart. The Lord gave me a new heart. That's only half of the truth. The full gospel is that He will also give you a new spirit. What will that spirit do? I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, whose spirit? My spirit, my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. If the Holy Spirit is in you, then you find it a delight to climb these steps, spiritually speaking. You find it a delight to serve the Lord. You live to please Him. If His Spirit is not in you, then all this must seem very heavy, very convicting. And you know, I just don't feel better when I go there. Perhaps I can go to Six Flags over Jesus somewhere and they'll make me feel better about myself. You know what feels really good? To be set free. What feels really good is to be given a new heart, a brand new chance to be given His Spirit inside of you so that what was impossible before now is possible. Friends, the Holy Spirit of God is calling. The question is, will you korban? Will you come near? and to come near to him will require you to do some things you can't worry about what these people are thinking if you're worried about what they think inside this building what will it be like outside the building i'm not a believer in cowardly christianity with every sniveling yellow-spined head bowed and every dainty little eye and weak-willed person eyes closed could you please raise One rainbow-colored finger for the Lord. That is devilish. He died before the whole world for you. If you do not lay your hand on Him personally and identify with Him publicly, you are not worthy of the kingdom of God. But let's turn that around. If you are everything that I've said and a whole lot more that i failed to say, and you're willing to publicly identify with Him, put your hand on His head and say, it is my wretched sin that killed Him, then He's willing to deal with all of your sin, all of your guilt, take your nasty heart out of your body, put a new one in, and then fill you with the Spirit of God. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, starting in the 19th verse, is the last scripture that we're going to quote to you today. Therefore, brothers, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near, let us corban to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Say he's faithful. faithful. What's he faithful to do? He's faithful to cleanse you, accept you into His presence, give you a new heart and a new spirit. Now if you're offended with me, that's okay, I'm used to it. But hear the next verse. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. No pastor's job is to pet you with a pillow, to fan you and feed you grapes. Shame on those pastors that do not dress your wounds. A pastor's job is to spur you on to set your heart in the heavens, to challenge your devotion and say, do you have enough salt in it? Are you still the salt of the earth? To say, is your fellowship without defect? Because if you're in right standing with God, He'll put you in right standing with your spouse and children and neighbors. To stand and say, don't let anyone lead you astray, but if you have sinned. There is an advocate to say, don't dwell in shame. If you're in shame, God wants to wash it away. And this pastor learned all of those things from the first five chapters of Leviticus. I wonder what we would learn if we read them all. Could you stand to your feet?